Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. And as you're transitioning adults, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 85 this morning. Psalm 85. Pastor, I like this. I don't have a clue what it is, but I like it. You build it. I like it. Psalm 85. Well, it is a joy to be with you all, and we are excited about all that God's going to do this week, and we pray that your hearts are refreshed and encouraged in grace. Let's pray together, and then we're going to let God's word speak to us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the praises that we've been able to sing this morning. It's incredible that believers are really the only people on planet Earth that can gather and sing these kinds of things. And it's because of who you are and what you have done for us. And Lord, this morning, like the old hymn writer said, said, Lord, will you revive us again? And God, that's what we pray. We're setting aside a week of revival services, so Lord, that we may get ourselves in a position that you may revive us again, individually and corporately as a church. And so God, this morning, we give this time to you and ask, Lord, that your spirit would take your word and make us like your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look with me in Psalm 85, verse 6. This morning, I want to ask you a question, and that is, what is revival? What is revival? And we're going to define that term here in a few moments. But I want you to look with me in Psalm 85. And this is one of the most famous verses on revival in the Bible. And it says this. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? God, would you revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Now, here's what we're going to do in the message very quickly this morning. My wife was reading through the scriptures and not too long ago, and she said, have you noticed that most of the time when you see the word revive, it's in the Psalms? And that is true. Most of the times you see the word revival in the Bible, it's in the Psalms, and specifically in Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is all about God's word. Every other verse has to do with God's word. And then you find it very interesting that in this chapter that, all, that has to do all about the Bible, you have the word revival. Now the word revival means to live again. To live again. Now you cannot live again if you've never first been made alive. So the Bible says in Ephesians 2, before Christ, our BC days, we once were dead in our trespasses and sins. Alright? But we now, by grace through faith in Christ, who is our life, who came to give us life more abundantly, we've now been made alive. Alive to God. Though we physically die, the Bible says those who believe in Him will never die. So even though we physically die, for the Christian, the moment we leave these earthly bodies is to be present with the Lord. It's victory. And now because of Christ, we're no longer spiritually dead. We now have a relationship with God, and He's no longer just our God. He is our Heavenly Father, of which we can enter into His presence and into His throne of grace anytime we want. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we've been made alive to God. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But also, in Christ, we receive eternal life. 
We're going to live with Him forever. We're going to enjoy Him forever. And we're going to a place where without fail, everyone will love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and will love one another with the love of God, and it will never, ever be interrupted. So we have been made alive. So you say, then why is a Christian in need of revival? Well, notice what the psalmist says. He said, God, your people who've been made alive, would you revive them again so that they may rejoice in you? <clears throat> what happens is, is that you and I can quench and grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Life himself has come to live inside of us. I tell the team this all the time. I said, team members, you've had an alien invasion. I never forget the first time I told them that in August. They kind of looked at me. They were kind of like, hey, Mark, uh, Christians don't really believe in aliens. I was like, well, you better have had an alien invasion. They said, what are you talking about? I said, well, the day you got saved, a person, not a it, not a thing, came to live inside of you forever. The Holy Spirit. And He doesn't want to just live inside of you. He has sealed you until the day of redemption. And He wants to fill you and control you. He wants every part of you. He wants to live His life through you. In fact, Paul put it this way. He said, I die daily so that the life of Christ may go on display through my mortal body. That's by the person of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Christ life is all about Christ. It's not about us. In fact, the more we grow in Christ, whenever we go to work or we go to Walmart or we walk around Reno, people should see Christ and not us. Why? Because we're being controlled by someone else. So life is the Lord Jesus Fully being able to live His life in and through us by the person of the Holy Spirit as we are allowing Him to do so. But when we quench and grieve the Holy Spirit by not abiding in Christ, by living in sin, we quench that life. And when we do this individually, and then when a church does this corporately, we say, we're in need of revival. Now, the American church is in need of a revival. Now, I'm not that old, but I am starting to get gray hair. In fact, you know you're getting old when people look at your kids and they all have red hair. And they say, where did they get their red hair from? I'm like, well, I used to have that. Really? I can't quite tell. So I'm starting to get to the age where I've got gray hair. But even though I'm only almost 43, my entire life, this is what I've read about and heard about. I've been in, I've been in the church my whole life. We need revival. Now, every night you turn on the nightly news and everybody's like, America's a mess. It's a mess. It's chaos. It's moral chaos. Moral relativism. It's like the book of Judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And we're like, man, that's a mess. It's a real mess. But here's the problem. It's sin. And that's been going on since Genesis 3. And the only cure for sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the only people commissioned to share that gospel are the people of God. If you're waiting on the White House to show up in Rome. To tell everybody the gospel, you're going to be waiting a long time. The only people who have the cure for sin are the people who receive the cure. But the but, 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 but books tell us and statistics tell us that only 2% of Christians share their faith. Only 2% of American Christians regularly share the good news. So we're in need of revival. Because a church that is revived lives the victorious, abundant Christian life. And we share that life with others. So the psalmist says, God, will you revive us again so that our hearts may rejoice in you? Real quick, I just want to give you a quick summary of some history of revival in our country and then talk about what revival is and then we'll close. Many of you have heard about the first Great Awakening. It happened in our country around the 1730s. It actually 
gave birth to our country there in the 1770s. It was the birth of religious freedom. And it happened under men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield, other than Billy Graham, is one of the most famous evangelists in our nation's history. And George Whitfield, in fact, was such a popular name that many people knew George Whitfield's name in America at the time, even when they didn't know the President of the United States. But George Whitfield preached, and, and they say that over 10% of the American population got saved during that Great Awakening. People were coming out in droves and weeping under the preaching of the Word of God. That happened during the First Great Awakening, and basically God's people revived, and an awakening occurred in the town. Now, someone, someone told me recently, they said, our town needs revival. And, and, and it doesn't really matter what words we use, but I, I want to distinguish two things. There's revival, and then there's spiritual awakening. The town doesn't need revival because it's never been made alive. Revival means to live again. Revival is for the church. But when God's people are revived, what the town needs is a spiritual awakening to the gospel that results from God's people being alive. And that's what happened in the first Great Awakening. Then we have the second Great Awakening that happened in our country from 1790 to 1840. It occurred in New York, in the Midwest, and it went from Tennessee to Kentucky. Denominations were born, churches were planted, seminaries and Bible colleges were started, missionary societies began, and it started the modern-day missions movement. Out of this great awakening, where people were coming in droves and were thirsting for the gospel and the word of God, and God was working powerfully, America became one of the greatest missionary forces in the world. In fact, out of the Second Great Awakening, there became the, there accomplished the abolition of the slave trade, prison reform, the temperance movement, women's rights, and the care for the mentally handicapped and ill. So out of this Great Awakening of the church getting to where the church should be and pouring out the gospel, our culture began to change. Then we head into what was known as the Welsh Revival. Many of you may have heard about the Welsh Revival. Last week or two weeks ago, the team was able to meet a lady who was in her 80s who grew up in Wales during the Welsh Revival. In fact, she was nine years old and could see the church um, from her house where the Welsh Revival took place. And in 1904 to 1905, revival broke out in Wales and 100,000 people trusted Christ through this revival in the country of Wales and swept across Europe. And during the past 150 years, we've seen Billy Graham and D.L. Moody and many evangelists. We've seen many churches born. In fact, your church, uh, well, I know when your church was started because you, you planted this church. But that started when? Uh, 2012. 2012. But then the church that had this building, when did it start? 1970. So we saw so many churches over the past decades start, especially here in what we call the Bible Belt. And so God has done a great work, especially here in the South. You see those dark green states. That is what is now considered the Bible Belt. Now, Virginia is light green. It used to be dark green. And, but you'll notice here the Bible Belt, and 115,000 churches in our country are located in this Bible Belt. But here's why I bring this to your attention. Just a year ago, LifeWay Research put out an article, and it was entitled, The Vanishing Bible Belt. And what it's saying is, is that even in the Bible Belt of America, where there's churches everywhere, more and more are starting to close their doors. 1,500 churches a year close their doors in many parts of even the Bible Belt. Now you say, why is that happening? Well, it's because God's people aren't alive. <laughs> they're alive, but they're not living the life. 
So churches are closing the doors. Here's the deal. You cannot be alive living the victorious Christian life, sharing the gospel, and shut your doors. And so churches are shutting their doors left and right in America. And the article went on to say that even down in the South, if the current trajectories continue, the religious demographics of the South in 10 years from last year will look similar to the current West and Northeast. That's the direction we're headed in a country. And we're not talking politics here. We're not talking about government. We're talking about the church. This is what's going on even in the Bible Belt of the South. Now, a lot of these team members that are up north, as soon as we get down south, they're like, Pastor Mark, there's a church on every corner. That is correct. But this is what's happening even in these areas. Uh, the people who read the article went on to state the following. Are more people coming into my church? So there's a question. But then they said this. The real question is, is, is the percentage of lostness in my city going down? Does my church care about the lostness in Roanoke? Now, there's over 300,000 people in the Roanoke metropolitan area. And the question is, is this the percentage of lost people going down in Roanoke as a result of God's people living in victory and claiming the gospel and making disciples? <coughs> a few other things, and then we're going to look at God's word. Uh, the writers of the article got together, and here's what they said. They said, part of the secret of staying healthy as a Bible Belt church is working to see the Great Commission fulfilled in other regions of the United States and around the world. C.T. Studd, a famous missionary, said, The light that shines farther shines brightest at home. So if you want to make disciples of the nations of the world, more or less Rono, you've got to shine bright where you are. And that is a very, very important principle. One more thought. In a post-Christian culture, which that's now the one we're in, post-Christian means the majority of the population around us does not believe the Bible is the Word of God. Many do not even believe in God. Many do not even know what the Gospel is. In a post-Christian culture, society in Roanoke does not care about what you have to say until they know how much you care. Now, I've ministered in Roanoke. Other than, I grew up in North Carolina, and I've lived almost as much time in Roanoke as I have in North Carolina. And I know this to be true in North Carolina, and I definitely know it to be true in Roanoke. The people in Roanoke do not care about what this church has to say until they know how much you care. They will know that we are Christians by our love. The love of Christ poured out through our lives. So, revival. Take a look at this thought. One final thought. Revival and spiritual awakening is a work of God. And we need that work of God. The psalmist said, Lord, we need your work. Lord, you revive your people again so that your people may rejoice in you. But one thing we know for sure. God works through his people as his people cooperate with him in repentance and faith. So we say, God, we need revival. God, this is a work of you. God, I can't make revival happen. It is your work. Lord, we want to see a spiritual awakening in Rhoda. But Lord, you're going to have to work. But here's what God says. I will work. But I work in cooperation with my people. If my people repent. If my people get right with me. If my people call my name. I will then, in conjunction with my people cooperate with me, pour out the work. Lord, revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. A few simple things I'm going to close. I'm just going to walk you through the several key areas in the Psalms where God brings up the word revival, and we're going to learn from this. What is revival? Psalm 85, verse 6. First of all, we need a revival of transformed desires. We need a revival of transformed desires. 
Notice he says here, God, revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. Now, uh, just want to throw something very simple. This doesn't take a Bible college degree to figure out. When God's people are excited about being with God's people and they're rejoicing in God and what the people of God are called to do, then that's revival. But if God's people come to church just to get through it and they're bored stiff, we're in need of rejoicing in God again. Now, here's something. God has never been boring, ever. God is not boring. How can God be boring? So if people, if God's people are bored with God, it's not God. It's us. So when we come to church and we stop rejoicing in the God of our salvation, we stop rejoicing in the joy of our salvation, and we stop rejoicing in the mission that God has given His people who are saved by His power for His purposes, we are in need of new, transformed heart affections and desires. God, will you revive your people again so that when people come to see your people get together, they go, they go, wow, these people are rejoicing in their God. They're in love with their God. They want their God. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Every time you and I sin, not only do we forget all that God has done for us, but every time we sin, we are being ruled by desires that need to be transformed. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we as a people are so content with the mud pies of sin and mediocrity when God is offering us an ocean of grace. You know why the pornography statistics in the church are just as high as they are in the world? Because God's people are in need of a revival where they rejoice in God, who said that in Him are pleasures forevermore, and He's better than anything this world offers. You see, when we're drinking from an ocean of grace... We will not settle for the mud pies of mediocrity, spiritual laziness, and secret sin. It's about our heart affections. In other words, we do what we want to do. So, so, so many times we get up as pastors, and it doesn't matter how much you pound on the pulpit and how much you beg the people, at the end of the day, every church does what that church wants to do. And we as a people do what we want to do. And here's what the psalmist says God, we're in need of a revival. And one of the fruits of that revival is, is that you will change our hearts so that we want what you want. And when we want what you want, we'll have no problem obeying because that's what we want to do. Transform desires. Here's the second thing. In the Bible, we see in Psalm 80, verse 18, that we need a revival of true prayer and dependence on God. Turn over with me just a few pages. Psalm 80, verse 18. Psalm 80, verse 18. And by the way, I know it's noon, and I'm going to be done in just a moment. Because y'all know that verse in Hezekiah that's not really a book of the Bible that God stopped working at 12 noon. But I'll be done in just a second. Psalm 80, verse 18. You'll catch that sometime after lunch about how that was actually a funny joke that you didn't laugh at. Alright, Psalm 80, verse 18. Notice what he says here. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will do what? Call upon your name. Here's what the psalmist says. Another sign of revival is not only when there's revival do the people's hearts have transformed desires to want what God wants, but when there's revival, God's people start calling on Him again. Tonight I'm going to preach on prayer. I know nothing about your church. I know very little. I do know this. I have not walked into a church where there's a billboard on the stage about prayer. Hallelujah. But can I say this? Prayer meetings are just about extinct in the United States of America in the local church. I don't forget when I was growing up, 
Back when I was a teenager, there was the big debate on taking the Ten Commandments out of public schools, and they'd taken prayer out of schools, and they'd taken uh, the Bible out of schools, and everybody was up in arms about how they'd done this. Now, 35 years later, we've just about taken prayer out of the church. Amen. The prayer meetings are non-existent. In fact, growing up, I've grown up in Bible-believing churches my whole life. I was a Baptist before I was born again. <laughs> and my whole life, I've stared at a bulletin that went something like this. Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, door-to-door visitation. You know what that meant? The pastor and one deacon who felt guilty because his wife made him come are going to go tell people about Jesus. And this has been going on for decades. For decades. You know what that signs of? A sick church. And then secondly, I've seen this in the bulletin my whole life. Wednesday night, prayer meeting at 7. You know what that means? The lowest group, attending group of the church in a given week are going to show up. They're going to do an organ recital, which I don't mean that we shouldn't pray for our physical needs. But we're going to halfway pray and we're going to go home. Everybody's going to be bored still. And, and no one's ever going to come, except for a handful of people. That's been going on the whole in fact, I talked to a pastor not too long ago. I said, how's your prayer meeting going? He goes, oh, we don't do that anymore. You can't get anybody to come. He said, it's not worth the life bill. Yet you go over to South Korea, where the largest church in the world is. I, think, I can't remember. Don't quote me on this. It's either 100,000 Christians or 400,000. But it's like the largest church in the world, evangelical church. The people get up every morning and meet together and pray at 4 a.m. Lord! Would you revive us again so that we will call on your name? Where there is revival, God's people are in love with prayer. Number three, we need a revival of the word. We need a revival of the word. Look with me, Psalm 119, verse 25. I'm just walking you through the Psalms and showing you where the word revival. If you read out of the KJV, the word is quickened, but it means revive. I'm reading down the New King James this morning, and he, they use the word revive. Psalm 119, verse 25. Notice what he says here. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Revive me according to your word. Every other verse has to do with the word of God in Psalm 119. He's saying, Lord, when we are living again in the power of your spirit and the victorious, not I, but Christ's life, we're in love with the word of God. Quick question. Over the past two years, what have you been believing? You say, what are you talking about? Why pastor during the first half of COVID? Just right down the street from here. And as much as I loved our church, and as much as we were a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, as much as God was working in our church, when COVID broke out, it revealed so much about where we were. And no matter what your opinions are on COVID, which I am not going to share one because I'm opinion worn out. But what I saw was Facebook lit up from believers on opinions from every spectrum. And you know what we proved? In the middle of a global unrest, we didn't bleed Christ. We bled our opinions. It showed us that we're in need of a revival according to the Word. The Apostle Paul, you cut that guy, you know what he believes? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We get a little pandemic, and I'm not saying, I'm not making light of it, it's been a big deal. And we believe, well, you are of the devil if you wear a mask, and you're of the devil if you don't wear a mask. 
And I'm mad at you and you're crazy and do this and do that. That's what we love. I almost stood up and looked at our church at one point. Just leave Facebook forever. Yeah. <laughs> you're killing our church. What have you led the past two years? Do you believe the Word of God? I, I heard a story not too long ago about a pastor, a true story. He had a, he had a large ministry and they had a Christian school and the pastor got so mad. Their, their Christian school won the state championship. And so after they won, they brought in all the ball players and they gave them all these medals and these big trophies and it was these huge accolades and confetti. And the pastor's kind of watching this, and he was proud of their, of their ball team that won, but he was just kind of watching this. It was like fanfare over the top. And the following Wednesday night, after the Christian school won their state tournament, they had an Awana program, and they gave an award away to this kid who had memorized a thousand Bible verses. But the award they gave to him was a trophy about that tall. And it made the pastor angry. And he got up the following Sunday at his church and he said, I want to tell you something. I love our Christian school and I love our church and I'm proud of all our young people. He said, but what I saw this past week was despicable. He said, a bunch of our young people went and won the state tournament and I'm proud of you and that's great. But a young man got up this past Wednesday night, quoted a thousand Bible verses and we gave him a trophy that big. He said, I'm telling you what, what we're going to do. He said, young man, come up here. He said, this is the sermon this morning. He's going to quote his thousand Bible verses to the church. So the kid got up, quoted all thousand Bible verses. And when he got done, everybody's just kind of sitting there. He goes, let me tell you what we're going to do next. We're taking up an offering this morning because we are going to buy this kid a 10-foot tall trophy. And I've already been to his house, and the ceiling in his bedroom is only 8 feet, so we're going to take up money to raise that part of their house. And they took up over $10,000. And they went to his house and raised the roof and put a 10-foot trophy in that kid's room. And you know what that pastor was saying? The Word of God. Yeah. Amen. We need a revival of the Word. Number four. The psalmist tells us we need a revival of heavenly vision. Look with me. Psalm 119, verse 37. Psalm 119, verse 37. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It is so, so needed here in America. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity or worthless things. And revive me in your way. I love this verse. Real quick. If there was ever a day that American Christians need to be turned from spending their time on worthless things, it is now. Right. You know what the psalmist says? This was going on several thousand years ago when this was written. It's going on now. The world offers vanity, temporary, that which is passing. Jesus said in Colossians 3 that we are to set our affections on things above. We need a revival of heavenly vision. Every pastor in America, every church leadership in America, every deacon board and elder board in America needs a revival of heavenly vision. You go to some churches, you sit with a deacon board, it's enough to depress you. Man, not very young people want to come to church. They all want to go down to Smith Mountain Lake on Sunday. You want to know why? Because when they come, there's no vision. Let's just keep doing what we've always done. 
Well, does anybody ask God what He wants to do with His church? Well, why would we do that? Lord, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and worthless things. And Lord, give me a revival. Not in what I want to do, but in what you want to do. I love what God says about David. He says, David was a man after God's own heart who would do whatever God asked in his own generation. If you're still breathing today, you're a part of this generation. And God has work for us to do in this generation by Christ Jesus, according to the power that works in us, for his glory. And then God says in Ephesians 3 to that, Amen. You say, well, I'm too tired for revival. Shame on you. Well, then just go on home to be with Jesus. We need a revival in this generation. I'm not ready to give up on this generation. And I will tell you this. We're not going to solve it by blasting people on Facebook. And we're not going to solve it on, keeping, on continuing to talk about how bad it is. We solve it by living in victory and getting out and sharing the victory. We need heavenly vision. God, what do you want to do with our church in this day? Revive us in your way. Number five. We need a revival of righteousness. Look what he says in Psalm 119, verse 40. Just a couple of verses down. He uses the word revival again. Psalm 119, verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. In other words, God, I long for your wisdom. I long for your truth. I long for your word. I long for your principles. Revive me in your righteousness. <coughs> Real quick, you know this well because you have a, a Bible preaching pastor. But the moment you get saved, you become a saint. That means holy one. You say, what does that mean? It means that you and I were given a righteousness that we could not earn, nor did we have. Our righteousness was as filthy rags. You see, something incredible happens at salvation. At salvation, all your past, present, and future sin is forgiven. And all that you deserve for your sin, the wrath of God, is placed on the Son of God who took it at Calvary. So now you are forgiven and set free of all your crimes against God. That's incredible. It's washed in the blood. But you don't just need forgiveness. God demands perfection. Well, you and I are so far from it. Like, by the way, Christians should never use this word. Uh, well, I know I'm not perfect. Brother, you're not even close. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, where did you even... Like, where, where, I'm sorry, like, where did you even... You're not even in that category. So you need a righteousness of perfection that only one person has ever done. Christ. So at salvation, He forgives you, and then He imputes to you His perfect record. So that now, when you stand legally before God, He sees His Son. You are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's called positional righteousness. But now, you and I are to grow in experiential righteousness. That's called sanctification. It's just a big word for, now I put on Christ. I become like Him. I grow in Him. So every day, out of our new righteousness, we grow in that righteousness. Here's what the psalmist says. We need a revival of righteousness. This is what I think. In 25 years of pastoring, there's been Sundays I come into the church and I'm like, something's just not right. You're preaching your heart out, you're praying, and it's like you're hitting a wall. You know what that wall is? It's what everybody's been looking at all week. It's what everybody's been doing all week that is completely unrighteous. 
And then you come to church, and though we're God's people, the Holy Spirit is so quenched in greed, you can almost cut the tension with a knife. Where there's a revival, God's people want to get clean, they want to get a clear conscience, and they want to walk in purity. Can I say this? There's a lot of things I couldn't get by with as a pastor, but now that I'm an evangelist, I can say things and then I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> can I say this for your pastor? Even though he and I have never had this conversation, I'm going to say this for his sake. So many times we tell the pastor, you've got 30 minutes to tell me the words of life. But you gave Hollywood the night before two hours. Yeah. We need a revival of righteousness. Pastor, you got 30 minutes. I know that this is God's word, and the grass is going to fade, and the flower is going to fade, but this is going to abide forever. I know this is God's holy word, absolute truth for all people in all places at all time, and I know that God wants me to meditate in this day and night, and God wants you to preach the word, but you got 30 minutes to tell me the words of life. But tonight, I'll give Tom Cruise two hours. We need a revival of righteousness. And then finally, we need a revival of our testimony. I'm going to say this in close. Psalm 119, verse 88. Psalm 119, verse 88. Turn over probably one page in your Bible. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Psalm 119, verse 88. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. You say, what does that mean? God has spoken. It is forever written. What the psalmist is saying is, is that when God's people are revived, and they're allowing Christ to live His life in and through them, and they're walking in holiness, they will have a revival of keeping the testimony of the God they serve. So for example, what God has commanded in His Word, when God's people are revived, they keep those commandments. My wife, she has read through the Bible six times in the past two years. <laughs> She's kind of read through it every 90 days. And so a lot of my sermons uh, I get from her because she'll look at me and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? I say, keep them coming. And not too long ago, she brought up to me this idea that she goes, Mark, did you realize that over 300 times in the Bible, it tells us that we should minister to the poor and needy? But in most Baptist churches, we don't do that a lot. But over 300 times, God says, my people should be concerned about the poor and needy. If God says something over 300 times, do you think he like means it? Yeah. Now, he also says over 300 times, don't be afraid. So what happens is, when God's people revive, they look at God's word, and they say, this is what God said, and they begin to keep the testimony of his commandments. Revive. I close with this story. I don't want to embarrass any of my kids because they're all here today, so I'm going to pretend like this didn't happen at my house a little bit. <laughs> Years ago, I was uh, talking to one of my children, and I said, hey, listen, i got a new chore for you. I said, uh, you're going to take out the garbage. I said, okay. I said, uh, I live over here on Strathmore, actually not, not too far from the church, uh, over off of Peters Creek. And I said, now, here's the way it's going to work. I said, um, on Wednesday night when we go home from church, I said, I want you to go get all the garbage out of all the bathrooms, the kitchen. You're going to, you're going to pull the garbage liner up out of the can. You're going to nod it. And then there's this black canister behind the house. 
You're going to put all that garbage in that black canister, and then you're going to roll that canister up to the road, and you're going to set it right next to the curb because on Thursday morning, the garbage truck comes, it's got this big claw, it's going to pick it up, it's an amazing thing to watch. It's going to pick it up, it's going to shake it, all the garbage is going to come out, then, you, then the can's going to come back on the road, and then you pull the can back down to the bottom of the house, and it's like magic, the garbage is gone. They're like, oh, okay, okay, got it, Dad. I said, now, don't ever put it in front of the mailbox. Because when that claw comes down, we don't want them to take our mailbox with us. Yeah. So you put it over the side of the mailbox. I said, but it, it, we got this, we got this. Yeah, yeah, we got it. So sure enough, Thursday morning comes. And, and, and I look outside, uh, like to look outside my bedroom window, and I see that garbage truck coming. And sure enough, I hear it coming, and I look, and I go, there's no garbage in I take off the hair down the house. I run around the back of the house. I, I got the garbage up there. Now, it was full of garbage. It's just that the can didn't make it to the road. So we left that part out. So I got up to the road. The, gar the guy in the garbage truck looking at me like, I've seen this. So he gets the garbage and he goes out. I roll back. I go wake up that child. I said, uh, child, I love you. I love you because I'm your dad. I love you because I'm in Jesus. I love you for many reasons. I love you because your mom loves you. But the garbage can has got to get to the road. That's the point. Oh, got it, man. Got it, got it. Next weekend. Wednesday night happened. <coughs> Thursday morning, I woke up, I looked out the window, the can was at the road. I thought, hallelujah. Baptists never do that. I did it that morning. Hallelujah. <laughs> I watched the truck. It picked up the can and shook it. <laughs> Nothing came out. <laughs> I went and I talked to that child. The garbage has to leave the house. It has to go in the can. That's the way this works. Oh, got it, Dad. Yeah. So then the next week comes. We're going to have it. I look out the window. The garbage can made it out. All the garbage is out. But you know where the can is? Right by the Were you there? You got the plate. It was right by the box. So I'm running out there, moving it by the box. I'm like, oh, yeah. Finally, the next week comes. I look outside. Cans pick up, garbage comes out, exactly what it's supposed to be. And on top of that, when I got home from work that afternoon, the can had made it to, the, to, to behind the house. Amazing. I went to that child. I'll never forget what they told me. They were in middle school. You know how middle school years are. Those are awesome. You know, they tell you, here's what you do in middle schoolers. You put them in a box, you put a hole in it, you feed them until they get in 10th grade and they run out of the box. I looked at my child. I never will forget what they said. I said, what happened? I said, you did it perfect. Even though I don't remember this, I mean, your dad's a preacher. I say things three and four times. I do it with three points, an illustration, an outline. I said, what happened? I never forget what they told me. They said, I decided I wanted to. You know what I said at that moment? Go find your mother, because she's the only person that can protect you right now. <laughs> and you know what I've never forgotten about that day? The want-tos change everything. When your child decides they want to do the right thing, you just want two-thirds of the battle. Now, we're all God's children. When God's children decide that they want what God wants, watch out, church, then you'll have a mind. Revive us again so that your people will want to rejoice in you. Let's pray together.
Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.